Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today you'll be hearing part three, the final episode of what happened to Elizabeth Salgado. This episode wouldn't have been possible without two key people who never hesitated to help me with Elizabeth's series. A Utah County Sheriff Sergeant who worked on her case, who we'll refer to as the Sergeant, and the PI on her case, Jason Jensen, who we'll refer to as the PI. With that, small talk sucks, so let's dive in. In the last two episodes, we talked about why Elizabeth came to Utah, what she did in the short period of time she was there, her disappearance, and the investigation that followed. Despite Provo Police Department's best efforts, months turned into years, and on the three-year anniversary of her disappearance, a press conference was held. The department refreshed the public on the details of her case in the hopes to generate new leads, but just one month later, they got a lead they never could have seen coming. According to the sergeant, on May 15, 2018, a man was driving down a long, winding road in Hobble Creek Canyon when he realized he really needed to use the bathroom. This was a this-can't-wait kind of situation, so he pulled over to the side of the road and went up a hill and into the woods to try and get a little privacy. That would sound like a long walk to pee, but he wasn't looking to go number one, so you get it. Anyway, this guy walked quite a ways into the woods, but when he looked down, he found himself in what seemed like the first five minutes of every procedural crime show there ever was. He found a skull and clothes. He was terrified and was already having stomach issues, so he ran about 20 feet in the opposite direction, did his business, and called the police to tell them that he thinks he just found a body. While en route, the sergeant gave this guy a call back to ask him why he thought the body he found was human. They get calls all the time from people who find bones, but usually they wind up being deer or elk. But this time was different. He told the sergeant, it's a skull with clothes. The sergeant told me that his immediate reaction was, well, elk don't wear clothes. Detectives raced to the scene and found that while the remains were technically about 30 to 40 feet off the road, you'd have to get through some extremely heavy brush that just didn't seem probable. To get there, you'd likely have to go around it, taking a 150 to 200 foot trip up a hill, slightly down a hill, and then into the woods. When they got to the location, they found exactly what the guy had reported and then some a full set of skeletonized human remains in clothes. It looked like it had been there for years. It was hard not to notice that the clothes matched what Elizabeth was wearing the day she disappeared. The only thing missing was that denim bag with the red strap and her phone. At first glance, it looked like maybe someone had dug the shallowest of graves to put the body in, but taking a closer look, that wasn't the case. There was clear evidence of both insect and animal activity, and as hard as this is to hear, the sergeant explained to me that maggots can actually stir up quite a bit of dirt, which can make it look like remains have been partially buried when they haven't. According to him, there was no effort made to conceal this body. Wondering how this random guy on a long road just so happened to find a body that had clearly been in the woods for quite some time, the first thing deputies needed to do was verify his story. Generally, I wouldn't be talking about a witness pooping in an episode, but it was a legitimate part of their investigation and they had to track his down. They did and his story checked out. 
because this is going to be a question that a lot of people are still going to have. This guy was out of the country on a mission at the time of Elizabeth's disappearance. After verifying his story, detectives needed every hand on deck to locate every single bone they could find. Some sifted through dirt, while others, including firefighters, fanned out walking shoulder to shoulder making sure they didn't miss a thing. Against all odds, the sergeant told me that they found 98% of the bones. Of course, some of them had been moved by animals to the area surrounding the body, but they found all but about six of them. They even found the inner ear bones, which are some of the smallest bones in the body. The stapes bone of the inner ear is only two to three millimeters long. For reference, a penny is about 19 millimeters wide. Detectives knew in their hearts that this was the body of Elizabeth Salgado, but they needed to run tests to confirm. They sent the remains to a forensic odontologist for dental x-rays, and the sergeant was there when they put the x-rays up for comparison, and according to him, he said, I'm no rocket scientist, but that looks like a match. Just to be sure, they ran DNA, and both tests led to one and only one conclusion. The body found in Hobble Creek Canyon was Elizabeth's. For three years, she had been just 26 miles southeast of her school and 30 to 40 feet from a road that was driven all the time. With Elizabeth's remains at the medical examiner's office, an autopsy was performed. Unfortunately, there was very little soft tissue left, mostly just connecting tissue at the joints, so they didn't have much to work with. The results took weeks, but according to the sergeant, they didn't find any trauma to her bones. And because of that, her cause and manner of death were listed as undetermined. Regardless of that, someone doesn't just vanish into thin air and wind up discarded in the woods for three years. The detective explained it to me like this. Just because the hyoid bone isn't broken doesn't mean a person wasn't strangled. Just because a knife or a bullet didn't hit a bone doesn't mean someone wasn't stabbed or shot. Even though her cause and manner of death were listed as undetermined, her death was now being investigated as a homicide. In talking to the PI on her case, he told me that some of Elizabeth's teeth were missing and that he believes it indicates an assault, though there was no evidence of injury to her maxilla or mandible. I asked him whether or not the teeth were recovered with her body, you know, wondering if there might be evidence at a secondary location, and he said that I need to ask the police department about that, so I did. I called the detective in Provo and the sergeant in Utah County. Both told me that they did recover the missing teeth at the scene, and while everyone seems to be on the same page that they do believe Elizabeth was assaulted, they don't have any evidence to suggest that her teeth falling out is evidence of that. That it's something that can happen during the decomposition process. To get a fourth opinion, I reached out to Deputy Medical Examiner Grace Baudino, she hosts the Dead Men's Donuts podcast, and she said, and I quote, teeth fall out, it doesn't mean anything. With Elizabeth's autopsy complete, her remains were sent back to her family in Mexico so she could be properly laid to rest. That being said, the department did hold on to a few of her bones to run some additional tests. They knew there were more comprehensive tests available, even if they didn't have the capabilities to run them themselves. 
Utah County didn't limit their searches to the immediate area surrounding her body. According to KUTV, they made their way down a gravel road off of the main road to see if they could find anything of evidentiary value. I'm going to guess, based on the fact that I could find no other gravel roads nearby, that the one they're referring to was Diamond Fork Camp, which is about 740 feet up the road from where her body was found. I asked the sergeant if they'd cross-reference people known to frequent the camp along with people she crossed paths with during the few weeks she was in Utah, and he said that it's really not used very often. Hearing the word camp, you might think of designated places to park your camper, water hookups, trails, cabins, and other campers, but that's just not the case here. I pulled it up on a map, and like he said, it's basically just a dirt cul-de-sac that's been cleared throughout the years. It dead ends after about 200 feet and at its widest is about 50 feet. So not exactly an attraction, despite the name. At most, it looks more like a convenient area to pop up a tent for a night or sleep in your car if you're traveling through. While detectives continued to investigate and research any new testing capabilities that might lead them to a suspect, Elizabeth's family hired a PI. He started asking around to see if anyone knew anything about the days leading up to her disappearance. A source told him that Elizabeth was actually at Hobble Creek Canyon for a church event the weekend before, possibly at Kelly Grove Pavilion, which looks like it might be about 10 or so miles from where her body was found. He mentioned to me that he was looking for other sources to verify that, so I asked law enforcement who had worked on her case. They said that she was at that church event and that others who attended have been interviewed and some have even been re-interviewed. The location is certainly a coincidence, but from what I've heard from locals, Hobble Creek Canyon is a pretty well-frequented area. Sure, it can get remote real fast, but it's also beautiful, and a lot of people in the area enjoy camping, hiking, and a weekend away at a cabin. In July of 2019, the PI posted photos of himself using a metal detector where Elizabeth's body was found. He said that he was researching the crime scene, looking for evidence overlooked during the prior search. It was there that he found a penny. He posted that it may have been left there by her killer, who he believes may have visited her afterward. The police aren't so sure, though. In talking to the sergeant, he went over every single thing they did to process that scene, including sifting through the dirt. Knowing that they found her inner ear bones, one of which is only two to three millimeters long, he finds it hard to believe that they would have missed something six to nine times bigger than that. He said, there's almost no way it was there. Regardless of the conflicting opinions about the penny, the PI held on to it and ran a DNA test through a private lab. In March of 2021, he announced that the results were back and that they'd found male DNA. Considering circulation, I asked him if it was a mixture of male DNA or one single presence, but he told me he couldn't discuss that. I did a little research, and while it's hard to narrow down the circulation rate of a penny, NextGen Personal Finance reports that a $1 bill is exchanged on average about 110 times per year. The penny in question was minted in 2006, and if we apply that penny to the dollar rate, it could have exchanged hands 990 times by 2015 when Elizabeth disappeared and 1,320 times by 2018 when her body was found. The chances of finding one single sample of male DNA on any penny seems improbable and like it might be hard to argue in court, 
But it was found in a pretty remote area, and the PI wanted to do anything he could, so according to KUTV, he planned on running it through geological databases to see if they might be able to find a distant relative to the DNA found. Websites like GEDmatch accept samples from places like Ancestry, MyHeritage, and 23andMe and find your relatives for free. People submit their DNA and build family trees all the time, most never thinking about how it could be used in criminal investigations, much like it was with the Golden State Killer. When I asked the PI if he had run the genealogy test yet, he said that he hadn't. Genealogy testing in criminal investigations can be a little controversial and pretty hard to come by. You have to prove that it's necessary and a judge has to sign off on it. According to the sergeant, they have never been in possession of this penny. Based on how thorough the initial search was and the amount of times any penny has likely been exchanged, it'd probably be pretty hard to get a judge to sign off on any genealogy warrants in this particular instance. Around the same time the penny hit the news, ABC4 reported that authorities were looking into two people who they weren't willing to name yet. They said that the two of them had given alibis, but that the detectives weren't convinced about their whereabouts after Elizabeth disappeared. Though firsthand, the sergeant told me that they'd looked into dozens of people around that time, but that everyone who seemed to pique an interest didn't really pan out. He said, if I could pin it on someone, I'd make an arrest. While Elizabeth's case is not a cold case and never has been one, the sergeant told me that they'd sent her case file to the Utah Cold Case Foundation for review. It's this massive group of experts from anthropologists to odontologists, forensic analysts, and even prosecutors. The department wanted to get fresh eyes on her case to see if they could find anything that investigators had missed and also eliminate any unconscious bias. He told me that sometimes, even when you don't realize it, your brain can get tunnel vision and that it's important to involve other agencies and various experts to make sure you're directly following the evidence and nothing else. The more trained eyes, the better. To say that this is the most impressive department I have ever worked with would be an understatement. While all of that was going on, the processing of her remains, the search of the surrounding area, the Penny and the Cold Case Foundation review, there was a brief blurb in the news about a man named Adam. He had been arrested for the murder of Sherry Black, whose case had gone unsolved for 10 years. Sherry Black had been found stabbed to death in her own bookstore in South Salt Lake back in 2010, but the man who killed her just so happened to live five miles away from Elizabeth's apartment complex when she went missing. On top of his criminal history, which Deseret News reported also included aggravated assault and attempted rape, Adam also seemed to have an almost taunting side. KSL reports that two years to the day of Sherry Black's body being found, he took to Facebook to post a photo of a cartoon holding a bloody knife with the caption, Don't upset me, I'm running out of places to hide the body. Considering all of that, when Elizabeth's mom told KSL that Elizabeth had told her she always felt like someone had been watching her on her way to school, it's no surprise that Utah County was getting some serious pressure from the public to look into Adam for Elizabeth's case. So they did, but the media didn't really cover the outcome. 
I asked the sergeant whatever came from the probe into Adam, and he said that until they know for certain what happened to Elizabeth, he's not going to shut it down, but he thinks that it's very unlikely that Adam was involved. Throughout 2021, the testing of Elizabeth's remains continued. There was one specific test the sergeant wanted to run, so he sent them off to the lab and waited. Unfortunately, whatever test they ran came back with negative results. He was pretty bummed about it, so when he ran into a tech from the lab a little while later, it wound up coming up in conversation. Thank goodness it did, because that tech told him that their lab can't actually perform the test that he wanted to run. With that news, he ran off to find a lab that could and sent her remains off again. In late 2021, the results came back. Unfortunately, again, he said that the test didn't take them where they wanted, but that they're not about to give up. So much has been going on with Elizabeth's investigation that you almost could have missed what happened last fall if you weren't looking for it. In what looks like either August or September of 2021, the exact date isn't clear, a woman named Miriam from Nafi County was reported missing by her family after ABC4 reports they hadn't heard from her in a few weeks. The Miriam who was reported missing was Miriam Salgado, the aunt of Elizabeth and the sister of Rudy and Rosenberg. Nafi started looking into her disappearance and determined that her last known location was in Washington County. Nafi is just 40 miles southwest of Provo, but Washington County is 250 miles southwest, closer to where Utah, Nevada, and Arizona meet, which meant that Miriam could have been anywhere in the state. Frankly, being so close to those three states, she really could have been in any of them. The only reason law enforcement was able to narrow down Miriam's last known location was due to an interaction with police when KSL reports that Washington County found her sleeping in her car. According to ABC4, it looks like they'd had contact with her on different occasions between February and August of last year, and Rosenberg told KSL that she'd been suffering from some mental health problems. Washington and Nafee counties were on the lookout for Miriam, and before long, something strange happened. On September 20th of 2021, officers were out patrolling in an area called Virgin near Zion National Park when they came across an abandoned car. It was Miriam's. Her car wasn't found sitting in a parking lot overnight or really anywhere you'd expect. KSL reports that it was found on a dirt road in an unincorporated area. I had to look up what an unincorporated area was, and apparently that means that it's an area that's not governed by a local municipality. Basically, the exact place you'd leave a car if you didn't want it noticed immediately. Rosenberg told KSL, My sister, she doesn't like to keep in touch very much with us. The reason we started getting worried is because when they found her car in this remote area, it was like, okay, so something is going on. Which I'd venture to say is a fair assessment. Since then, deputies have searched the area around where her car was found twice, but according to the outlet, neither of those searches led them any closer to finding Miriam. Naturally, with another Salgado going missing, all departments involved had to wonder if Miriam's disappearance had anything to do with Elizabeth's, so they reached out to Utah County. The sergeant I spoke to about her case gave KSL a statement and said, You at least have to let the question into your mind, could there be someone who has it out for the Salgado family? We don't know that, we don't have any evidence suggesting that they do, but at the very least, it's unusual that another member of that family is now missing. 
As of today, Miriam Salgado is still missing, and the Utah County Sheriff's Department is asking for anyone with information regarding Elizabeth's disappearance or death to come forward. Most media publications I read suggested that law enforcement were looking into two persons of interest. The PI on her case has actually made posts to Facebook directed towards them, saying, Dear person of interest, if you have nothing to hide, reach out to me. Clear yourself from suspicion by contacting me so the case can head in a different direction. If you are innocent, don't think about blocking me from social media. That just creates more suspicion. Once upon a time, you were very active on social media. Then one day, that all changed. What caused that? Innocence until proven guilty is the courtroom, but from here, it doesn't look good. He gave his phone number and added, let's talk and clear the air so that this case gets solved, but not with you in it. Best regards. It definitely sounded like he had a specific person in mind when he made that post. In another post he made on March 20th, a few days after I spoke with him, he posted about a video he was filming regarding Elizabeth's case and wrote, This afternoon, we'll finish up with filming. The final scene today will be Hobble Creek on the Elizabeth Salgado case. That one special asshole knows where we will be filming, and we all know where he'll end up when he dies. Do with that what you will. While the P.I. seems to feel like he has a sense of who may or may not be responsible for what happened to Elizabeth, the sergeant doesn't want to rule anyone out. He doesn't want anyone to get tunnel vision and unconsciously rule out someone who very well could have been involved. He wants you to think about anything you've heard, anything you've seen, anything that made you tilt your head sideways and squint a little. Whatever it is, he wants to know. Do you know someone who said something that sounded just a little bit off? Was there someone who mentioned information about her case before the news broke? In the years since, has someone drunkenly brought up her name and said something you thought couldn't possibly be true? Do you know someone who was strangely interested in her case in a way that was out of character? Do you know someone who gets really uncomfortable anytime they hear her name? Do you remember anyone having a quick change of behavior around the time she disappeared? And is it possible that someone told you what happened to Elizabeth a long time ago and you got scared and didn't say anything? If you or anyone you know answered yes to any of those questions, he wants to know. Every single person who has worked and continues to work on Elizabeth's case is a level of dedicated that every single case deserves. I want to reiterate that Elizabeth's case is not a cold case, it never has been, and they will not stop until they find answers. If you have any information regarding the disappearance or death of Elizabeth Salgado, please call the Utah County Sheriff's Department at 801-794-3970. If you're not comfortable talking to anyone on the phone or you want to remain anonymous, you can go to their website at sheriff.utahcounty.gov, click on Media in the top right-hand corner, and hit Submit a Tip. It'll take you to a page with a form for your tip, but notice that the contact information at the top is optional. The sergeant specifically told me that you do not have to include it and that he's more interested in validating the information shared than knowing who sent it in. If you have ever thought about submitting a tip and decided not to, now is the time. All anyone wants is answers. Elizabeth and her family deserve them.
For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Elizabeth's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me there tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, all your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch, and of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Side note, along with Elizabeth's case, if you have any information about her missing aunt, Miriam Salgado, please call the Washington County Sheriff's Office at 435-656-6644.